say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. which you have just heard read by the Governor-General's official secretary was countersigned Malcolm Fraser. <laughs> Who will undoubtedly go down in Australian history from Remembrance Day 1975 as Kerr's Kerr. Hello and welcome back to Belligan by the Long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So... Last week on the podcast, we promised that we would be wrapping up this season of Barely Getting By by talking about September 11. Um, I think between the fact that we're not really feeling that enthused about talking about September 11, what with everything that's going on in the COVID crisis at the moment, and also some very exciting news out this week, we've decided to instead focus on what we're calling a historian's emergency. Yes, it is a uh, dramatic emergency, I think. In the, in the world of Australian historians. And that is, of course, because um, the palace letters, the so-called palace letters, were released by the National Archives uh, this morning at the time of recording. Um, and there has been, uh, it's safe to say, I think, a lot of interest. And for our part, I think the reason that we're calling this um, a historian's emergency, a, a term that Chloe has coined, is because it has made us both um, pretty angry, I think it's safe to say, or at least, I, you know, I'm kind of a little bit annoyed by the situation, but Chloe is, um, I think it's safe to say Chloe is fuming. Yeah, yeah, look, I've calmed down a little bit since this morning when I started messaging Emma about it, but I think that the immediate reaction to the release of the Palace Letters and the way that that's been managed, particularly by the press in Australia, I think it it says a lot about the way that we treat we treat historians and we treat historians' work and we treat archives and I think that there's a lot of a lot of naivety in the way that people have been talking about the palace letters as kind of a breaking news story. So I'm just going to ask Emma to do a bit of a recap on what this whole this, what the palace letters are and how we've got to this point. Yeah, sure. So we have actually spoken about the palace letters before on the podcast. Um, what they are. I guess in a nutshell, is correspondence, so letters, um, between the Queen or um, more specifically not the Queen herself but her private secretary and the Governor-General John Kerr. And this is in the months um, leading up to the dismissal of the Whitland government in 1975. So that is when the Governor-General John Kerr dismissed Gough Whitlam, the Prime Minister, in November 75. And we've had, of course, as everybody knows, a a huge debate in Australia about this for decades, about the legality of that move of Whitlam's dismissal. Um, And it's been a formative moment, I think, you know, for Australian politics and Australian history, but also from a personal perspective for, for many of our boomer parents who are kind of Whitlamites until, you know, until the very end. Um, And so, this is important, I suppose, because there's been question overshadowing this for, for decades about the palace's knowledge or involvement in Kerr's decision to dismiss 
Whitlam. So, you know, whether the big question, I suppose, about whether the Queen knew, whether the Queen approved of this move. Um, until, I guess, until the release of these letters today, all 211 of them were, um, I guess, classified, to use an American term. Um, they were locked away and nobody was allowed to see them. To be really specific about that, they were deemed private correspondence rather than public correspondence. So they were deemed to belong to the Queen in as a private person as opposed to the Queen in her public role. Yeah, which is as ridiculous as it sounds when, when Chloe puts it that way. So the Australian historian Professor Jenny Hocking, um, who has done some absolutely extraordinary work around this, actually took this to court. She she argued that the you know basically the Queen couldn't argue that this is personal correspondence because this is an issue of, of national significance. And that court battle has been going on for years between Hocking and the National Archives of Australia. And um, essentially Jenny Hocking, Professor Jenny Hocking won that case in the end and the letters were released. Um, she won the battle in May of this year and the, the letters have only just been released. I think to the surprise of many, you know, we kind of thought that this process would be a really protracted one and be, would be drawn out for, for a long time. But for whatever reason, the National Archives have decided to, to release them today, which I suppose brings us to kind of the point of us having this discussion, which is, which is Chloe's fury at the fallout since about 11 o'clock this morning look okay so emma i'm as happy as any nerd and especially any nerd who has a phd in history about the palace letters being released i think that it is also not only is it of academic interest i think it could potentially have serious consequences for our democracy it also says a great deal about our democracy that this was able to go through the courts and the national archives could be compelled to release these documents First of all, as as a non-expert, this isn't my area or even my particular period in history that I, I know a lot about. I don't have much to say about what the palace letters contain or what they might or might not reveal about the palace's involvement in the dismissal. But what I saw in the past week, and especially this morning, we are recording on the day that they, the palace letters were released, journalists in particular were jumping on board this story and saying things like they would change everything about how we understand the dismissal. And they were even predicting that this would be, you know, this would reinvigorate the Australian Republican movement, which, as we know, has been practically dormant for the last 20 years since the Republic referendum in 1999. I think that the way that people have responded to this has revealed a lot about how, you know, about common understandings about how archives work that don't actually reflect historians' practice. And this is, you know, I think this is more important than an academic debate, and I'll get to the reasons why shortly. First of all, what I'm seeing is a lot of people talking about how the palace letters are simply going to slot in to the story of the dismissal and somehow complete a story that has been missing a crucial element for, you know, for the past four decades and even more. This isn't how historical research and how historical writing works. History is much more than simply copy-pasting text into a timeline and reporting what is found from that. I mean, you know, I, I, as a historian who, like I said, who isn't an expert in this, if I were approaching the palace letters, the first thing I would be asking, but probably before I even read them or as I go on reading them, is really simple questions. It'd be things like, who are these people? Who, you know, what is the role of the Queen's private secretary? What are the protocols around letters like this? Who who gets to see them? I mean, is it just is this just correspondence between the, the private secretary and the Governor General? Does the Queen even see what's being written on her behalf? How does this get reported? to her. 
I'd ask really basic questions like how long would it take a letter to get from Canberra to London in 1975? There's so much context around this that just isn't isn't being explored and that needs time to be explored. Yeah, totally. And I think that's kind of, you know, as I suppose as much as we could be guilty of kind of jumping on the, the hot take bandwagon, I suppose this is kind of our hot take on the hot takes. You know, as you said, Chloe, we are not, neither of us are, are expert historians in this period or in sorry neither of us are experts in this historical period either I think in Australia or in the United Kingdom and there is a real risk with this kind of approach to these letters being released just as Chloe said of bringing of journalists in particular but also you know some historians who are kind of jumping on this bad wagon as well of bringing existing assumptions to the you know so-called analysis of these letters without understanding any of the the context so if you treat these letters just as a kind of discrete piece of work and don't have the context around them just as Chloe said you know don't necessarily have the deep knowledge of the the UK political system you run the real risk of of completely misinterpreting what is going on and I think also of kind of missing a whole bunch of context because of course you know Chloe and I have spoken about this before there are not only questions around the role of of the Queen and her private secretary and and UK politics in this, there are also questions about the role of the CIA in the dismissal. While there's the risk of, you know, I guess straying into conspiracy theories, there, there are legitimate questions about American knowledge and involvement in this, in this. And, you know, I'm kind of picturing as well journalists doing a similar thing if, you know, a bunch of documents were released by the CIA regarding this, because what happens is we bring a whole lot of assumptions about political systems to this when in fact the United States government functions in a completely different way the record keeping procedures are completely different and really complex and you have to be able to I think at least point to the the important differences around that kind of record keeping the records that are kept and records that aren't kept because of course what is not kept is really important and is and what is not said and and you know being a total non-expert in in UK politics I imagine there is there is so much kind of hidden context in letters that are written by a private secretary that result from you know quite literally centuries of of a build-up of political culture within the UK monarchy that we cannot even pretend to kind of begin to understand and so that the risk of misinterpretation I think is so significant when you have people basically kind of doing a keyword search or like scrolling through potentially a thousand pages of letters until you get to the 11th of November and reading that single letter and saying, oh, well, the Queen didn't know about this. You know, that is, that is not a rigorous analysis. And I think that there's also a question around archives because, you know, one of the first things that you learn when you go through historical training is that archives structure how we receive and potentially how we interpret history. A good historian, the job is is to go is to go beyond the archive or to work against the grain of what the archive is telling you to and that requires understanding that requires prior understanding and it also requires training i mean you know i think it's going to take weeks and probably years to actually to actually put together a story around these around these documents or use these documents to inform an interpretation of the history and i think it's also important to note that there is not going to be a single a single story or a single correct interpretation of what this means and what this means about the monarchy's relationship to either the governor general to the dismissal or to Australia in general. So I'm, I'm, 
I'm very much waiting for Professor Jenny Hawking's interpretation of the letters. She is an expert and she's a master of this material. But I'm also waiting for I'm also waiting for a take from Guy Rundle, who is one of my favourite writers and who's written extensively on this subject. History is open-ended. It's something that's up for debate. But the way that these the way that the palace letters are being presented at the moment, you wouldn't know that. People are sort of writing writing in advance of a story that might not be there, but also might just be one story amongst many we can tell about these documents. And I think probably that's why Chloe and I wanted to, to chime in on this debate, you know, because as I said, you know, we are, of course, you know, we can be charged with kind of cashing in on the, these hot takes. But I, I think, you know, a lot of our motivation for, for even starting this podcast was to kind of slow down and, and sit back and examine what it is that we don't know about things, you know, and what we'd like to know. And, and so this, for us, this moment is kind of distilling a lot of those questions because we're seeing, I, I suppose, the things that we kind of think are, are wrong with the way that we approach history in this country play out in, in real time. And it's been really frustrating. And I think, it, you know, from our perspective, it's also been really frustrating because of what Chloe was just saying about archives, because there are, I think, some really significant questions about the way that our National Archive has handled this. Yeah, that, no, that's absolutely right. And I think that this has been reported that the National Archives, first of all, they gave advanced access to journalists to these documents, um, which I think is, I think it's 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 selective and it's also privileging that access. I mean, you know, historians um, historians prerogative here, but I suspect that Jenny Hawking's probably the first person who should have who should have seen these documents. Um, but also the National Archives, they held a briefing before the official release of the documents in which they highlighted certain documents. And that in itself is something that is already shaping reactions. You know, that's what cued suddenly all these um, all these people posting on Twitter and news headlines saying, breaking, the Queen didn't know about the dismissal. We actually don't know. what the, We don't know from that single letter exactly what the Queen did and didn't know. And, you know, as I guess is to highlight that sort of disjuncture between the levels of access that are being, that are being permitted by the National Archives, having given advanced access to journalists, their website then crashed when the general public, including academic historians, logged on to try to view the documents themselves. Which is, which is of course, another kind of form of gatekeeping. And I think it's so easy to forget that the National Archives as an organisation isn't independent. You know, this is, this is a government agency that's kind of deeply embedded in the, in the culture of, of politics and government in our country. And this government agency is kind of feeding detail to, to favoured journalists, which, as we know, I think is a problem, a broader problem in Australian politics. But I think it's also, Chloe, you know, it's kind of tapping into some things that we've talked about, um, particularly, I think, in, in relation to the, to the 1990s. And that's kind of the way, um, I guess, clickbait is working and and the sort of attention economy and how this is playing out again in real time you know it's entirely possible that by the time we release this podcast our attention's completely shifted and everybody's already forgotten about this you know by tomorrow yes yeah and i think i think i think it's interesting that you you talk about the attention economy which is basically a way of a way of understanding the way that our eyeballs are being monetized for clicks news media the information economy you know i guess the whole the whole structure around publishing and the circulation of information 
it's more and more reliant on a model for revenue where revenue is generated through clicks and companies and their shareholders are rewarded for bold headlines and the sheer volume of stories, some of which might luck out and generate, you know, a whole bunch of clicks. That's what that's what clickbait essentially means. I think what we have is, you know, lots of different individuals and organisations that are currently competing for our attention. And I do worry that what goes along with that is a loss of detail, a loss of deliberation and a loss of quality in the sorts of stories we're being told about these documents. And, you know, I mean, this isn't something that just affects history and I'm trying not to be too precious, but I guess, you know, I feel more about this because it's kind of the attention economy kind of, I guess, cannibalising my turf. But knowing what I do about history, I know that history is, history is an enterprise that takes time, it takes deliberation, it takes discrimination. It also involves a hell of a lot of training. I'm not saying that only historians can do history, history, but historical training does mean that we can give, you know, we give well-informed takes, you know, not hot takes, maybe cold takes, um, but we can give well-informed opinions and views on what this archive contains, but we also need the time to do that. But I think you, you hit on a, a crucial point there, Chloe, in, in terms of the time that is needed to do that. You know, both journalists and historians are occupying, you know, like a lot of people are occupying an increasingly precarious space and time is not necessarily a luxury that we have. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, and I've been, I think, I think we've all been victims of this in some way. I mean, you know, who hasn't urgently attempted to write an op-ed on an issue of the day in the hope that they're going to generate publicity and enthusiasm for their work that, you know, that might in fact secure them a job sometime, someday down the line. So I do, I sympathise with anyone and that's, you know, I sympathise with journalists, I sympathise with historians and any academic who feels that they are in some way compelled to offer their true sense on every single issue. But I think that this is this is very much a condition of the world we live in when both the media and universities are chronically underfunded and they are precarious working environments. So people, yeah, I sympathise with people because they will do what they need to do to survive. But I don't think that the results in terms of an informed public discussion are necessarily good ones. That's absolutely true. And I think sort of what you're getting there at there is is what we at least try to emphasize all the time especially you know again when we're talking about the the 1990s that this isn't an issue of individuals behavior this is what we're trying to do here I suppose is a kind of systemic critique um, and using this as an example of of I guess the kind of inherent problems with the situation that we we find ourselves in yeah and I think that you know and that's also something that and to go back to what we've been trying to do with this podcast that's something that is historically contingent and it's something that has shifted throughout history we haven't always lived with hot takes so this morning before I, you know, my attention was totally co-opted by takes on the palace letters. I was reading a really lovely article in the New York Review of Books about Eric Hobsbawm, who I've spoken before about on the podcast, who is my second favourite historian. Um, this was by the historian Mark Mazower. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, and it was quite interesting because it was a, it was a review of books about Hobsbawm and also kind of a reflection on his life and his work. And one of the points it was making was about how throughout his life, Eric Hobsbawm's scholarship was very much an ethical and a political enterprise. But it was also one that was very much conditioned by the economy of the media and production of knowledge of its own time. So 
one point that was made that Hobsbawm, at his height, he was writing in a period which was something of a golden age for serious non-fiction writing, which could be complex, sophisticated, it could take time, and it also reached a wide audience, mainly through the medium of cheap paperbacks. I don't want to over the idea of a golden age. I think anyone who's listened to me on this podcast will know that I'm not a big fan of hearkening back to so-called golden periods in history because most of them weren't, in fact, that for the vast majority of people. But I think that it's worth the comparison between the fact that, you know, Eric Hobsbawm could be a serious, deliberative historian. He could also be massively popular. He was, I, I think it's safe to say that he was the most popular historian across the globe at, at its height. And, but he was also someone who had a job and also made money from his books. He could write from a position of relative security. He wasn't bound to an attention economy. And I guess that's another reason why the events of today and this week around the palace letters really got to me. And, you know, I think it's apart from professional interest, I think I was angry for quite personal reasons because apart from my scholarly interest in, in the palace letters and what they might reveal about the, uh, the Australia's relationship to the monarchy, it makes me really sad that we live in an age where it seems less and less possible to be able to write seriously and reach a wide audience and actually, you know, I guess have, a, have, an, have an impact on public discourse. And I think that that's in large part because of the failure of social democracy in the late 20th century, which I think is kind of bringing us back to the 90s, back to the theme of this series of the podcast. Yeah, it is uh, it's funny how we have, have managed to do that, to bring it back to our, to our favourite topic, which is, of course, the long 1990s. So I guess to kind of um, continue down that road, Chloe, you mentioned that, that some of the takes that we have seen have spoken about the Republican movement in Australia and, you know, the kind of massive impact that this, this release of these letters is going to have on reviving that movement um what is your take is that is that part of the of 1990s australia coming back um well i think it could be but as with any you know historical hot take it's always going to this is always something that's going to be provisional but something i would note to if we're going to talk about that comparison between the 1999 um republican referendum in australia which failed and this conversation that has sort of come up over the last few weeks to do with the palace letters I think it's interesting that people seem to think that the, in some way the palace letters are going to single-handedly reinvigorate an anti-monarchist sentiment in Australia. If you look at the history of the Republican referendum, at the end of the day there were a lot of reasons why it fell down and there was a lot of sentiment against the Queen and the monarchy, um, not least because of the controversies around Princess Diana's death, which we've spoken about previously on the podcast. It had the reason that the Republican referendum fell down was less because people approved of the monarchy or had strong feelings about the monarchy. It was more because Australia couldn't decide on what sort of republic it wanted and what the future of this country was going to look like. And I think that that's something that's worth bearing in mind as we go forward and as people start to read the palace letters in depth and start to, you know, I guess kind of absorb their lessons into Australian history and into interpretations of Australian history is that there's reflexive anti-monarchism and then there's a different project entirely which is articulating what Australia is and what Australia should look like. And I think that, you know, 
perhaps naively, I think that's the grounds on which any future Republican debate will be won. Uh, well, I mean, for what it's worth, I, I don't think it's naive at all. I think I think possibly what is naive is thinking that something, you know, albeit something hugely significant for the development of Australian politics and Australian democracy, you know, something that happened 45 years ago in our current context is going to impact political debates, you know, assuming that people have the time and the luxury to kind of reflect on that right in this moment, I think is, you know, a pretty big assumption about the, the state of people's lives. And and on that note, Chloe, as we as we kind of wrap up our, our rage-induced um, Historians Emergency podcast, I will ask you, because I think this may, perhaps runs the risk of, of being a little bit too niche, you know, beyond the kind of circles um, or bubbles or whatever you want to call it, the Twitter bubble of, of hot takes on this release of the, of the Palace Letters, why does this matter? Why do we care about this? Well, I mean, I, I look, I care, I care about it because this does, you know, the palace letters in and of themselves, they are one way of getting to some sort of answer around serious questions around Australian democracy. I think that it also, this whole furor, it's, it's a, it is a reflection, like I said, of the way that information is released and managed and understood popularly. And I think, you know, like I said, you know, I kind of despair of that sometimes, even as I do, you know, want to see the best in the internet and I want to see the internet as a kind of a democratising force. I think that the way people talk about the palace letters with this expectation that it's going to solve, you know, this mystery of decades and it's going to tie up the, the lingering mysteries of the dismissal with a nice little bow, it says something about how we understand history and how we want history to provide us with consolation. And I think that if there is one lesson that you and I have taken from, you know, our, this, the two seasons of the podcast and most recently our investigation of the 1990s is it is that history very rarely offers us consolation it doesn't it does it doesn't give us a guidebook for how to approach the future it's always unresolved it's always open-ended but it's also something that is massively fascinating and I think that that's the perspective I think people should be taking to the way they read these letters the way they they read you know people's interpretations of them is with curiosity and interest rather than seeking, you know, predetermined answers. Which in a way I, I hope has given a kind of preview to our, our next episode, which we do promise will be the final instalment of this series on the long 1990s. Um, this hopefully is our last digression um, when we will try and finish up the season on the long 1990s but as Chloe just so beautifully explained I think but not really answer the question of whether the 1990s has ended or not so we hope you'll join us then Barely Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University original music by Stuart Cullen 